John uh, will be there today. Go ahead and make sure you have a, uh, just a sleeve, one of the sleeves that's inside your um, announcements. Am I on, Tony? Is that working? Is my mic working? Okay, perfect. So I'll go ahead and read First uh, John 2, uh, 15 through 17. That's where we'll be. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we see a passage of Scripture from your word, Lord, it's like a um, kind of a knock on the head uh, to, your, to your people. So, Lord, I pray that we would not, Lord, that we would be convicted if there's anything that we need to be convicted of by your Spirit. But, Lord, help us not to become overcome, overwhelmed by the weight of our sin. Help us, Lord, this morning, look unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of life, who is the one who's overcome temptation, who is the one who is not of this world. Thank you, God. Help us, we pray. Attend to your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, if you remember, we, we kind of looked at um, a passage of Scripture that if you, 12 through 14 is what we looked at last week, and it's kind of a parenthesis of sorts uh, where John helped us understand more of our position of who we are and, and who, whose we are. So who do, whose do we belong to or uh, what part of the family are we? And then we also looked at what it means to mature into complete manhood and obedience of faith. Uh, but the passage this week and next week, next or two weeks from now, or whenever we get to the one on 18 through 21, uh, we're going to be talking about the Antichrist, we're going to be talking about some, some really hard texts. But as I thought about this text specifically, about not loving the world, there was an example that's kind of stuck in my mind, of, and I forget what country in the jungle they do this, but in other parts of the world where they have, um, they have monkeys, some, some tribal people, what they'll do is they'll, they'll hollow out a monkey, or like a, a spot in a log, and I just, as I thought about this, this text this week, this is the only illustration that kept coming to my mind and how similar we are to this. And they, they hollow out a spot in a log and, and they put like nuts or something that a monkey will like down in it. And what they'll do is they'll catch monkeys, but they'll do, they do so not because of like any teeth on the trap or anything else, but what they do is they put something that the monkey likes in the log. And the monkey will reach his hand in and he'll grab a hold of it. And he, he won't let go of whatever it is and he can't get his hand out of the log <laughs> And as I think about this text this week, it's, it's kind of actually what he's thinking about. Like it's, it's kind of what John's showing us, is that's actually kind of what we're like. Is that we're actually kind of like that monkey in that we, we see something we know we, we want or we shouldn't have necessarily, and we reach our hand in and we grab a hold of it, and the lust of our flesh actually convinces us, just, just all the monkey would have to do is let go of the stuff that's in the log and walk away. But what he does is he 
he holds on, and basically the hunters come and they just kill the monkey because he can't let go of what's in the log. And, and John's warning us this week. He's saying, don't, don't be like that. Don't, don't do that. So I'll give you the image that's been in my mind all week as I've considered this text. So let's just look at the first part, uh, if you're taking notes. Uh, so in verse 15, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. So if you're taking notes, you'll see that the, the first thing we need to look at is the pitfall of loving the world. And I actually, maybe to help you remember it a little bit better, every time you hear loving the world, think about the pitfall of taking the bait. <laughs> That's what I keep describing it as. The pitfall of taking the bait. Now, a couple things we need to call to mind as we think about this. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. So we need to define love properly. We need to remember a couple weeks ago that when John says love, he's not just meaning a feeling towards something. He's meaning something that begins in our thought processes, that moves into our affections, and finally is shown in our lives. And this is the kind of love that regards something as precious, and John's estimation of this, that's the bait. That's the, that's the pitfall to, of loving this world. It's a kind of love that has an attitude of preciousness toward it. And the warning here for John is very simple. The text for today is so simple that we can actually miss it because it's so simple. It's don't regard the world as precious. Don't set your heart and your affections on this world. Don't love the things that are opposed to God and his kingdom. And he goes on and he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And then he gives the estimation of this person. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we see the, the warning of taking the bait. The warning of taking the bait. John is warning these believers not to regard as precious this world or anything in it. The warning for these believers is that everything that is in the world is not of the Father. Meaning that if they seek to set their hearts upon something that is not of the Father, it will lead to destruction. And remember, anytime we come to a passage of Scripture that there's a warning, we should view that warning like you would a road sign. If you're going around a sharp curve... The warning is for John. He's saying, look out. Don't, don't go too fast around this curve. There is a love that God hates. Think about that for a second. There is a love that God hates. So don't set your heart on something that is not of the Father. Don't set your affections on something that isn't lovely. And don't regard something as precious that's evil. We need to love what God loves. We need to hate what God hates. And I think one of the biggest obstacles for us, as I consider loving what God loves, hating what God hates, is actually the lie, the secular lie, that this world is neutral. Newsflash, there's nothing in this world, nothing. From politics to public ed education to the medical world, nothing is neutral, nothing. We all, everyone wants to, our neighbors, all our friends, you, you'll see this, it, just talk to people for five seconds, and you will find out that they just want to be neutral. They just want to be objective. You can't be objective. There is no objectivity in this, in this world. Everything we interact with in a normal day is part of this world system. It's either part of this world system, or it's part of the kingdom of God. 
So don't take the bait. But let's define the bait. So John goes on a little further, and he says, we need to do some definition work here. Because John has used the word, the world, multiple times in this letter even. So let's define the bait. What do we mean by that? What John means, and I'll just give a couple of definitions real quick. The first definition he uses, we see in John, John 1.10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, so in this first definition, he's, he's describing the world as being the cosmos, or everything that we see. That's actually what the Greek word actually is, is cosmos. Everything that's in the world. And that's not what John has in mind here. Actually, James even tells us that that's not how we should regard the world, everything we see, the plants, the flowers, the trees, all the animals. He actually says this, this is this first definition of just the world in general, the created order. He says, every good and perfect gift comes from above and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James is warning them not to be deceived, but to actually give thanks for the good gifts around them. So that's not how John is defining the world here. I think my mic died, Tony. You can just turn on my other one. There, try that. Maybe. Can you hear me now? Either way, I'll just keep talking, and I'll assume that it turns on eventually. So that's definition one. That's not what he has in mind here. He doesn't have in mind here just the, the world, the cosmos as it is. Here's a second definition. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you. Don't mind the man behind the, the curtain. You try that. Does that work? Okay. Yeah, so that's the second definition. That Christians need to evangelize the world. That's not what John has in mind here either. So we've seen the world, and there's actually like 10 definitions that you can find from the world in, in the New Testament. So I'm just giving you three. Now this third definition is what he's actually talking about here. What John is describing is different from other words because he says, do not love the world. What he has in mind here is everything which is in rebellion to God. And I love this, this one definition. It said this. It said the idea... The idea here is, is of the world of men in rebellion against God and therefore characterizes by all that is in opposition to God. This is what we might call the world system. It involves the world's values, pleasures, pastimes, and aspirations. So, so we've seen, it, he's not talking about, so if your neighbor comes to you and is like, hey, how are you doing? And you look at them and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to love you. You're, that's not what we're talking about here. Or if you have somebody in your, in your school that's like, ah, hey, how are you doing today? Sorry, I'm not supposed to love you. That's not what we're talking about. John's talking about a system of this world that's in rebellion to God. Another translation of this same verse says this. He says, do not set your heart on the godless world or anything in it. And I think that's very helpful. Even in 1 John, 1 John over and over again, here's, here's a better even explanation of what he's talking about. At the end of 1 John, he says one short, quippy statement. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's really what he's talking about here. An idol can be defined as anything which has ultimate love and affection in our life. 
It's not simply what we think about when some tribal sense of a pole that we set up and we all worship together. That's not what an idol is. An idol is anything that we place primary or ultimate love on in our life. Hear the warning of even James in another place. He says, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And here's the thing we need to remember as we even read, do not love the world. Little children, do not love the world. Is that there has been a war that has been raging since the beginning of time. A war that's far greater than anything the Hatfield and McCoys could ever imagine. It's been a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We need to have two categories of people as we consider 1 John. A war between the seed of Adam and the seed of the serpent. The father is opposed to everything that's of the seed of the serpent. And this seed of the serpent is in complete rejection of the father and his plans. So these two categories are simply unbelievers and believers. Those who are opposed to the system of God and his mission and those who are in submission to God and his mission. Those who love the world and those who love God. I feel like today we're going to have a lot of different passages of Scripture. and You don't need to turn there. I'm hoping all of them will be up on the screen. But Jesus even says in Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. For he either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is money and possessions. What Jesus is saying here is that everyone only has one master. Now, respectively, Christians can, for a season, be ensnared in the world and its system. But there are generally two categories, unbelievers and believers. So the warning is don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Don't, don't take what this world is. Now John's going to give some more definition. In verse 16, he says this. He says, for all that is in the world, and then he goes on to describe it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. So there are three components that make up the world. And the first one we're going to look at is the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. If you're taking notes, the desires of the flesh. Now, the word for desire in the New Testament is, is generally a neutral word. I'll give you an example of a good reference to desire. In 1 Timothy 3, 1, I think this is very helpful as we look at Because sometimes I think, I, I was raised at least to think, oh, desire is just a bad thing. We shouldn't desire anything. That's, that's not what we should think. We shouldn't, desire is not the issue. We are desiring beings, but we need to look at what's the object of the desire. In 1 Timothy 3, 1, here's an example of the good. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Okay, so right there, the exact same word, desires, is a good thing. So John's not saying, don't desire. That's not what he's saying. So we see an example of a good desire. A desire is to serve, is to serve the people of God. There in 1 Timothy. That's a good thing. We don't try to get rid of desire. To desire is to be human. Let me say that again. To desire is to be human. But the question is, what are you desiring? For John, the desires of the flesh could be understood as the desires which come from the flesh. 
which shows us that they are a bad thing. Here's the thing, and I, I, I almost question even using the word don't take the bait, because bait sounds like it's something outside of us. And if you're a Christian, what you'll come to find is actually that the bait is actually something that comes even from our own heart. And that's a scary thing. Because I'm not calling us to go out and be monks somewhere up on a, a pole that sit for 30 years away from the rest of the world. That's not what I'm calling us for. Because desire would still pop up and it would still ruin us. What John is describing here is any and every desire that comes from man that is in rebellion to God and his kingdom. These could include anything like lust, gluttony, or a numerous amount of addictions. But uh, maybe I'll give you an example. Picture with me a, a king who decided to throw an elaborate party for his guests. Okay, so he invites all these guests and he, he decides he's going to give them food and drink and everything. And picture at this said party that the king brings out his, has his servants bring out miles and miles of food. Good thing. It's a great thing. He's bringing out food, feeding his guests. Now picture with me the guests coming to get food. They get food and they, they eat. Now one group of guests eat until they're full. And what they do is they go, thank you. Thank you, king. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for feeding us and providing for us. But then there's another group of the guests who eat until they're full, but rather than giving thanks for the food, they start to go back for seconds. And not to eat them, because they're full. They can't eat anymore. They go back and start hoarding the food. And you like talk to the guests, and you're like, hey, guests, why, like, why are you hoarding the food? And they're like, well, uh, we don't know how long the food will last. And they start to sound like uh, from the Lord of the Rings, uh, forgetting, his, forgetting his name right now. Smeagol, yes, yes. Starting to sound like Smeagol. My precious. They're bringing in the food. They're like, why, why are you doing this? And they start to say, well, well, we don't know how long the food will last. And look at these other guests. They might start stealing our food. You can just imagine the, the gauntlets of things they would maybe say, why are you doing this? And like Smeagol, what they say is, my precious, oh yes, more food, yes. There are two groups of people, the same situation, given the same amount of food, and two people respond the same exact way. One responds out of thanksgiving, out of love, out of adoration, but the other responds out of lust and gluttony. So here's the thing I want you to see. This is not saying that you can't eat food, or, and I'm just picking on gluttony at this point, but food or desire in this way. This is not saying that you can't eat food but it is saying that the food can't consume you. Let me say that again. This is not saying that you can't eat food, because the next question is, you're saying we can't eat food? I'm not saying that. Food is a good thing. But what we're saying is that the food can't consume you. And then he goes on. So that's the lust of the flesh. Here, Here he goes on and he says, the desires of the eyes... And now the NKJV, it keeps using the word lusts, and I think desire is just as good of a word there, the desires of the flesh or the desires of the eyes. And John gives us another category. He says that the desires of the flesh bring, are, are shown in the desires of the eyes. Even Jesus, he says this in Matthew 6, 22 through 24, he, he describes, 23, he describes what the eyes do. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus is showing us that our eyes are like windows. They're like windows into our heart. They allow us to gaze upon what we see. They allow light in or darkness in. And very simply, what you behold, what you look at, is what you become internally. So if you're beholding worthless things, you will become worthless in that way. These include anything like covetousness, lust, any number of things. And we see other places in Scripture like Proverbs 4.23 that says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So when we, when John's, John's warning here is not just the desires of the flesh that comes out of us, but actually the desires of the eyes that let everything that is wicked from this world in. We need to be careful what we set before our eyes, envying what our friends have on social media, watching wickedness on our Netflix account. This is the tendency to look at things without giving any reference to God. And then the last one. He says the pride of life. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, the word for pride there could be understood as arrogant boasting or arrogantly saying, look at how great I am. But it doesn't really make any sense to say the pride of life. So what's he saying here? What's he aiming at? And I think another translation hits it pretty well. It says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possessions. Now that word of life is the exact same word in 1 John that he later says, but if anyone has the world's goods... There's of life, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? So we see very clearly, he's not talking just about, oh, well, you're proud, or you're boastful. It's actually being boastful of the things or the possessions that are in your, in your midst. Now go back again, real quick, to that party we were talking about. Think about the king, he, he comes and he says, he, he gives him miles and miles of food, plenty of food to feed the guests. But imagine with me too, Maybe the king says, you know what? I also want to give him go-karts because he's a cool king. He's a fun, happy king. And the only reason is for them to be thankful and for them to enjoy him. There's no, there is no earthly purpose that he'd give him go-karts other than it's really cool to drive around a go-kart at the, at the party. And so some of the guests, they receive the go-karts and they're driving and they're happy. They're so thankful. But then there's another crowd that they get real envious. They see their other neighbor drive by, and oh, he's in a nicer go-kart. And you can see how the party then degenerates very quickly. So they become envious of what, everyone else's go-karts. And the ones who actually have a go-kart, there's some that haven't quite got to the go-kart part, and what they do is they're like, look at them, them fools over there driving in their go-karts. I'm going to go get all these other party favors. This is, this is really what he's talking about. John's talking about the pride in one's possessions. And what you have is you have this king who's lavishly given to his guests all these different things. And the guests who've actually hoarded and envied and brought all these things about. And the example shows us what our heart is like. So so what you're saying, Daniel, is we're not allowed to have go-karts. What you're saying is you're not allowed to have things. I'm not saying that. You are allowed to have things. You must have things, <laughs> I think at some level. You are allowed to have things, but you're not allowed to have those things have you. 
And that's what John is aiming at here. It's, it's good, it's right, it's not bad to have things. We should not get in that poverty mentality that says, oh, I'll just sell all that I have, that will make me holy. That's not what we're talking about. You are allowed to have things, but you are not allowed to have those things have you. I'm reminded of what a, there was a baseball player, a Hall of Famer, I forget who it was. I want to say it was John Schmoltz, who said that his whole career, he's a Hall of Famer, he played baseball for like 20 years. And he said that his quote was, I was holding on to baseball for my whole career, but it turned out as he became a Christian that his, the baseball was actually what was holding on to him. And it's the same principle. It actually turned out that he had turned baseball into an idol in his life because he couldn't give it up. It turned out the baseball was actually holding on to him. Selfish human desire is what is brought about by what our eyes behold, and it shows itself through what we boast in. In James chapter 4, 2 through 3, he says this. He says, you desire and do not have. Same word. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot retain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you've asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. And friends, this is our story. It's exactly what Eve is presented with in the garden. Satan comes to Eve in the garden and he's tempted, he tempts her and he says, does God really say? Did God really ever say that? And this is what it says in Genesis 3.6. This is how Eve processes even in the garden. Listen to what it says. Satan's been doing the same thing ever since the creation of the world. Let me show you how. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, there it is. She beholds that the tree was good for food. The thing that God said, don't, don't eat of that. Don't have eat. You can have all the rest of these things. Don't eat of that tree. This is what she does. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, she, she beholds it. And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And in this moment, we realize that Eve was deceived in the garden in the exact same way that you and I are deceived. We behold something that God says, that's not good, that is not right, that is bad. You should regard that as bad. What they do is they behold it, and we say, that's good. That's actually not that bad. And since the fall, we have become like our first father, Adam, bound by our own desires and temptations, Let me show you then, too, in James chapter 1, 1 through 13 through 15. I know I'm jumping around in a bunch of different places, but I want you to see that this is the witness of the entire New Testament. It's not just what John is saying. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Don't take the bait. The problem is the bait, and here's what he says, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. And this text is showing from James that this bait that I mentioned earlier actually resides in our own heart. He is saying that our desires, which come from within us as fallen creatures, are contrary to God himself. And then he gives some reasons why, John does, in, back in 1 John. Here's the reasons. 
He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. It's not of the Father, but is from the world. So we see the reasons not to take the bait. And the first reason is very simple. The bait, the, des- the desires that come from within us that are wicked, is not from God. The reason that John gives is that we shouldn't take the bait is the desires are not from the Father. He's showing us that, that if we're really children of God, then we won't love the things of this world. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. And I, and I feel like I'm just giving example after example, but I, I just want you to see what it would look like. Take an example of an employee who's trying hard at his best, at his, at his, best, at his job. Now, this can be done in a God-honoring way or it can be done in a sinful way. And if he's been given God-given ability and talent and applies his talent with humility and thanksgiving, God might be honored and praised, then it's good. But what about if he begins to use his talent to show how superior he is to everyone else? He uses his talent, which is a gift from God, to boast in his own intellect and wisdom. He uses his talent, which is a gift from God, to gain his own wealth and importance. Do you see how, va- how vain that is? How... And that's what temptation does. This is what, this is what the world is setting forward to us. So don't take the bait. And here's the other thing. This is the other reason why. Is in, we see it in verse 17. The world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. Here's the other reason John gives, is that the bait, the world, is passing away. This world and all its desires are passing away. Everything from the seed of the serpent is coming to nothing. I heard a really good quote. It said, the world is not evolving, it's devolving. I like that. Think about that for a second. It's not evolving. It's not progressing into something. It's actually devolving. The world and all its systems are coming undone. The desires of this world are passing away. And John's warning couldn't be any more clear. If you are those who succumb to these desires, then you will pass away as well. So thus far, it's been really bleak. It's been very simple, but very bleak. Don't love the world. Don't take the bait. Let go of the the nuts and the berries that are in the log and walk away. But the question is how? How do we do it? How do we not take the bait? So how not to take the bait? is what we're going to look at. And I want you to turn real quick. So I want you to read verse 17. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So we're going to look at the obedience of faith. And I want to do some with one example. Turn real quick to Luke 4, and we will start to wrap this up. So Luke chapter 4. And I want to show you one example of how not to take the bait. It's very simple. Again, this is, this is not a complicated text. Don't love the world. And the way to not take the bait is the obedience of faith. So Luke chapter 4, just a, just a um, reminder, in Luke chapter 4, what we've seen so far is that Jesus was baptized in the, in the river by John, and then the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And what do we see happen in the wilderness? Satan tempting him. Now, the way we don't take the bait of this world 
is not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not saying, well, tomorrow I'm going to try real hard not to take the bait. That's not the answer. Look at the way Jesus was tempted. Jesus, the one who we talk about so often, who is the founder and the author and the perfecter of faith. You know, he was tempted just like we are. Actually, he was tempted in such a, such a way that he didn't eat for 40 days. He was desperately hungry. And this is what it says in verse 3. Follow with me in verse 3. And I'm reading out the ESV for this. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Hear that statement. The devil, even in the way that he's tempting Jesus, is implying you're not really the Son of God. You're not really this way. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Command these stones to be bread. Eat. Eat your feast. Here's Jesus' reply. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So just by way of application, one, one way that we overcome, or one way that we don't give in, or don't take the bait, is actually that we have the plumb line. That we establish the plumb line of our life, which even for Jesus, even for the Son of God himself, you know what is ironic here? He doesn't say, Get away from me, Satan, immediately. What he says is, he picks up his own word and says, man shall not live by bread alone. So we establish, we we cling to the promises of God. We cling to the Bible. He uses scripture. So that's the first way that we, we, we don't give in to the love of the world. But look at the second way. And notice, too, how even Jesus, so we have Eve being tempted in the same way. We even see Jesus being tempted in the exact same way that John lays out here. Satan's picking up, and he's, he's riffing off what he's already done, the desires of the flesh. You're hungry, aren't you, Jesus? Just make some bread. And you'll see here in a second that the, the pr- desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And look at verses 6 through 8. And he said to him, that's Satan saying to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority. He brings him to the top of the hill and he says, and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then worship me, it will all be yours. Think about that. Here's Jesus, tempted in the wilderness, 40 days, hungry. He knows his destiny too. He knows his destiny is death. And here's an option here, you can have my kingdom. You can, become, you can become king, but you can do it in a way that's not according to God's word and not according to God's will. And listen to how Jesus responds to him. He says, it is written. Again, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Again, clinging to the promises, clinging to his own word. And so I want you to see that replacing old desires with new desires. I am not advocating that we remove desire. We cannot remove desire. What we do is we replace it. We take off the old and we put on the new. The enticement from Satan is that he will give Jesus his whole dominion, but not according to God's plan. Basically, he's offering him another way to become the king of the universe but without the cross. But Christ is reminding himself of his own mission. 
of his own purpose, and his purpose was to go and die for sinners. His purpose was to rise again to newness of life on behalf of wicked and sinful individuals. That's exactly what he goes and does. So Jesus had a way out. He could have said, you know what, I'll do this. But he didn't. We have one, we have a second Adam who's come, and though he was tempted, did not give in. And I want you to look at what it says. Go further. Um, actually, I actually want to give you an example before I do that. And then we'll move toward wrapping this up. Actually, yesterday was the anniversary of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer that, that died under the, the reign of the, the Nazis. He ministered under the shadow of the Nazis, where friendship with the world captivated many believers. In Bonhoeffer's day, the church had actually started basically turning a blind eye to what the Nazis were doing to, to Jews. Jews were being literally holocausted in their own backyard, and they kept meeting. They still just kept meeting, they kept serving, they kept doing all the things that the church did. And this is what Bonhoeffer says. So let it, let it strike you in this way. Yesterday was his, the anniversary of his death. This is what he says. In obedience and faith alone, the church took up the struggle ordained for her. For the word alone she may be led For her Lord, she gladly gave up all cares, all security, all friendship with the world. Yes, our way leads also through distress, but the Lord bound us not to yield. Do we want to yield today for the sake of friendship with the world? Do we want to sell our calling for the mess of pottage of a safe future? Through our own behavior, we are making the gospel of our church unworthy of belief. And if you think for a second that our world is not degenerating because we live in America, that we're not going to face similar things that the church did then, let me tell you, we are closer to Bonhoeffer's day than we realize. So taking, replacing old desires or old desires of wanting to be friends with the world and replacing them with new desires. Okay, let me give you the last one, and then this will be it. The last one's very simple. It's guarding our hearts. Listen to what Satan says to Jesus again. And he, in verse 9 of Luke 4. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Again, challenging his identity, challenging who he is. For it is written, now listen, Satan can do this. Here's the difference of discernment. Discernment is not telling what's false from what's true. It's telling what's half true from what's false, or from what's true, okay? So Satan, using scripture, he says this, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So see how Satan does this. He doesn't just come and say, oh, okay, well, uh, let me just give you some wicked plan. He comes and he actually twists scripture and he manipulates it. And Jesus answers him, it is said, again, it is written rightly, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So it's guarding our hearts, guarding our hearts. Again, discernment is not distinguishing falsehood and truth. It's the difference of distinguishing half-truth from full truth. So we need to guard our hearts all vigilance. So don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. And if you find yourself taking the bait, 
we can come back and we can remember that Jesus Christ has overcome. He has been the one who's overcome and won the victory. He is the one who has actually given himself for us to not take the bait. So we're going to move into a time of reflection. And I just want you to consider, as you think about the text we've heard today, again, it's a, it's a very simple text, but it can be very challenging, especially if you're ensnared or living in the bait or living in the systems of the world. So consider, maybe, today, what the Lord is challenging you to throw off? What is he asking you to to take off and to put on Christ in a new way? So consider that. Just take a moment and reflect, and I'll pray for us.